0: Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network, so join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, everyone. You're listening to Great Woman in Compliance on the Compliance Podcast Network. And today, our guest is Dina King. Dina is the author of Compliance in One Page and is currently the Director of Compliance at Texas Women's University. She is a graduate of Brigham Young University and the University of Utah. She has over 30 years of experience in a variety of organizations, including local, state and federal government, higher education, nonprofit, utility and for-profit. Her work with the Foreign Service took her all over the world, including Stockholm, Buenos Aires, Hong Kong, New Delhi, and Vienna. She has also served on professional and nonprofit boards. Dina's compliance experience includes work as the program manager of IT audit slash compliance at NV Energy in Las Vegas, and she was also a key member of the team that designed the initial Brigham Young University compliance program. In recent years, she has spoken to audiences at local, industry-specific, and national conferences on topics including compliance program documentation, design, and self-assessment. Dina, in 2015, you published a book called Compliance in One Page. What motivated you to write about setting up a compliance program? Well, part of it was
1: my work at BYU. As you mentioned, I was part of the team that created their initial program at BYU, and so I learned a lot about the seven elements and good program structure and design. When I left BYU, I went to NV Energy in Las Vegas and was also very interested in keeping my hand in compliance there. And one of the things I noticed was the pattern was very similar. So we were, quote unquote, doing compliance at the university, very similar to how we were doing compliance at Utility And the requirements of the federal sentencing guidelines were very similar to the requirements in the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. I thought, you know what, there's a pattern here. Maybe I should start, you know, documenting this pattern. So over the next few years, I kind of formulated these thoughts. My director at BYU had written a book about audits. So I approached him about maybe we should write a book about compliance. So he agreed and we started working on it. He eventually stepped away from the project because he had some projects he just couldn't help anymore. So he said, go ahead and take off with it. So I took off with it and wrote that book and finished it in 2015.
0: Wonderful. That's fantastic. When you were going about getting published, what's the biggest challenge that you had to surmount? Well, one of the challenges is uh, actually knowing how to write a book.
1: And no one really tells you how to write a book. So I kind of (laughs) used... Other books I had seen that are a little more technical, you know, this is a little more of a technical book and he and I, you know, in the starting of it, just kind of put together an outline and then agreed on an outline and, and then you just kind of sit down and you write. But the publishing part is interesting because he'd been published before I had not. And so I kind of thought to myself, well, what should I do? And because I'm, you know, lesser known, I'm kind of in some ways I was new to the compliance profession, I decided to self-publish. Self-publishing sounds you know, glamorous and easy, but it's not, because one of the things you learn during the self-publishing process is how much a publisher does for you, and you have to do it yourself. But, you know, having been through the experience, I'm really grateful because I'm about to self-publish again with the second edition, and I learned a lot of lessons. And you just learn a lot about design and editing and who should you hire to do your editing and your design and things like that. So that is just kind of a big thing, but there's a lot of guidance on the internet and that helped me a lot. But my next challenge is my goal with the next second edition, I'm going to self-publish that, but I'm going to start looking for a publisher with the second edition. And that will be a new challenge that I will learn a lot about.
0: Well, that's really exciting, Dina. I didn't know that you had another book bun in the oven and what's the second edition going to be about? Well, the second edition is going to be an improvement on the first, so it's still going to be
1: compliance in one page, but time always teaches you things. So the second edition is going to be about 80% the same content, but 20% is going to be enhanced, it's going to be updated, some of it's going to be new and better. So that's, hopefully I'm going to publish that at the end of the year, probably first part of next year.
0: Fantastic. That's really exciting. We'll keep an eye out for it. And what advice would you have for someone interested in being an author about compliance?
1: Well, in our case, we kind of just, you know, when we started, my co-author and I started working on this, we just kind of realized that no one had really written about our particular topic. And so we thought, you know what, Let's, let's write about it. But I think the advice I would have someone if they see something new or unique that no one is really talking about in compliance, and they think they could really add to the compliance conversation, then write about it. You know, and you might start with articles and in Ethicos magazine or in Compliance and Ethics Professional Magazine because those articles kind of help you get your thoughts together and give you some direction and also get you, you know, writing. And then write an
0: outline and go for it. That's great advice. And I would also recommend having a go at submitting for Ethicos. It's a good way to get started and gain some confidence in your writing. Exactly. So, Danielle, You're currently at Texas Women's University. What drew you to working at a predominantly female university?
1: Honestly, it was a university. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It being predominantly female was kind of secondary. To make a long story a little bit short, I had been consulting for a while. And after I kind of was ready to transition back into a more full-time situation, I really wanted to get back in higher education. So I used higheredjobs.com. That was my primary source for looking. But I was looking to be a director at a university. And this one popped into my email box one evening, literally. And I looked at that and I thought, you know what? That's exactly what I'm looking for. And what made it even more exciting for me personally is because my brother and sister both lived here at the time. So when I took this job, it was really nice to be near my family again. But it was exactly what I was looking for. It's in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And I liked that because I have a lot of, you know, friends. I grew up in this area. But I come from a long line of educated women. My grandmother graduated from college way back in, like, the 1920s. So that was way, way, way before women went to college. And so to me, that was a cherry on top is to be able to work for a university that's primary goal is to educate women because being an educated woman is a big and important value for me. So I really enjoyed that part. So that's been a really, really nice to work for a university that focuses on educating women.
0: That's great. And I think, you know, if there's anyone out there who has aspirational thoughts and their mindset on a a specific type of job whether you believe in there being a higher being or not it is really encouraging to hear that setting your mind to something and then the right role coming along it's really worth it when it does so if you're out there and you're hoping for a new opportunity just keep at it and keeping your eye on the prize and waiting for the right one to come through because it's only a matter of time. Totally agree with that totally. (laughs) What are some of the most stark differences you've observed at TWU compared to other workplaces?
1: You know, there really are not that many, frankly. And you might have had this experience in your career as well is when you go step into an organization, it's an organization full of people, you know, and you have to learn about what their strengths and weaknesses are and how to share vision with them, I think one of the stark differences it was a little different at this university is this university is kind of in a transition. It was a smaller university and it's been growing a lot in the last few years and so they're having some growing pains a little bit so so we're helping the university grow and work through some of those transitions has been a little bit different but other than that, you know working with people is working with people and you have to create partnerships and listen to each other and try and agree on a direction together. So other than that, there really hasn't been a lot of differences with other places.
0: Super. All right. What's the most important learning outcome of your program? Do you focus more on an understanding of soft skills or a strong legal and regulatory foundation?
1: When I hear soft skills, I hear working with people. And I think that's an absolute must in compliance. You've got to be able to work with people because in compliance, you have to work with all kinds of different people because compliance covers so many different areas, as you know. You know, you've got compliance in HR and you've got compliance in, at a university anyway in financial aid. You've got compliance in occupational health and safety. There's compliance all over the place. And so you really do have to have those soft skills. You cannot live without them. You really can't. But the legal and regulatory foundation is important too because. Content matters. You really have to know the content. But what I have found is there really is equal importance to having someone who really understands the regulations. And at my university we call those our compliance partners and they're our subject matter experts. So you know my compliance partner in HR is, you know, really good at HR compliance, whereas my compliance partner over in occupational health and safety is really good at OSHA and EPA and those types of things. So that content is important, but equally important is the program structure. And you have to have both. And I think that's probably the one most important thing we've learned at our university is how to and I don't know if you've heard the term, the genius of the end, how to do both, how to have content and good program structure at the same time, because both together is really what creates a successful compliance program.
0: Totally agree. And I hadn't heard of that term before. Thank you for introducing me to that. You're what, you're is, what is your best advice for women studying compliance to springboard to success in the workplace?
1: Well, I suppose in a way I'm a good example because... Back in 2005 is when Brigham Young University decided they were going to start their first compliance program, and so the task was given to my director at the time, so they transitioned him from being the director of internal audit to being the executive director of compliance and audit, and he gave us a big lecture one day about, okay, here's how our office is going to change, and here's what compliance is and what we're going to be doing in compliance, And afterwards, I basically knocked on his door and I sat down in his office. I said, I think I'm going to really like this compliance thing. Can I be on this team and can I help? And he said, yes. And I think that's the number one thing is if you really are interested in compliance, find out who's doing it and sit down in their office and say, how can I help? Because by being willing to help somebody build something, most everybody's going to say, yeah, I'm going to need help building this. Please come help. But being willing, stepping forward and being proactive and being willing to help, I think is just the most important thing you can do.
0: Oh, you're really just preaching to the converted with that one. Anyone who's worked on my team knows that I'm very strong about making sure that you don't just sit there waiting for opportunities, that when you want something, you look for those opportunities yourself and you start knocking on those doors and seeing what you can open because, um, exactly, yeah, life's not going to wait for you. So I, exactly. I, love, I love that. I love that you saw an interest area and you put your hand up and said, hey, can I do this? And now it is your specialty. It's what you do and what you're known for. So I couldn't agree more with that advice. So true. So true. Being willing as well to do just about everything in compliance and not being sort of snobby or exclusive about (laughs) exactly types of tasks, right? Like when you're starting out, really put your finger in as many pies as possible and try all the different areas and show that you're willing to pitch in and be that really helpful person. Exactly. Exactly. What do you consider are the key compliance risk areas for compliance officers in higher education roles? All right, so
1: one of the interesting things about higher education is we are an employer, just like everybody else. But we do have an advantage because we have a group in Washington called the Higher Education Compliance Alliance. And one of the things they provide us is with a matrix of all of the laws and regulations we're required to comply with. So one day I was just curious, and so I kind of sorted through that list and I extracted everything out of that list that was higher education to see what was left. And I would say about a third of those laws and regulations are higher education, but two-thirds of those laws and regulations are just because you're an employer. So, anybody has to comply with, you know, HR and safety and things like that. So, we do have, like I say, about a third of the federal regulations that uh, apply to us are specific to higher education. So, we have issues with, like, Title IX financial aid, Clery, which is a special thing just for higher education. So there's probably about eight or 10 areas that are specific to higher education that we have to make sure we have our eye on the ball. Other than that, we just have to do a lot of what other employers have
0: to do as well. Absolutely. And Title IX has been in place for some time. How much does it occupy your time or resource? We're very fortunate at
1: TWU in that we have a Title IX person, So he's the subject matter expert in Title IX. So I just have a, you know, a relationship with him. I communicate with him somewhat regularly, but he's basically in charge of running Title IX. So we're very lucky in that we have a specialist who does Title IX here.
0: That sounds like a great idea. In a former life, you used to work at the CIA. Will you tell us a story from your time there? (laughs) As you heard in my introduction, I traveled a lot, which was very exciting. And the
1: joke that goes around with the CIA is if I tell you, I'll have to kill you, which is not true at all. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the things that actually I learned during my time when I worked with the CIA is something I still use today. And are you familiar with the three lines of defense?
0: Yes, absolutely. Three
1: lines of defense. CIA was doing that really, really well 20 years ago. And it was in some cases more than three lines. They were very, very good at the layers. So if they were protecting something, you know, and especially in CIA, they were protecting intelligence and information, they had layers upon layers, upon layers of defense around something. And so I've carried that with me forward because I recognize that when you're protecting something, whatever it is a privacy or whatever is you have to have those layers of defense. And they were very, very good at that. And one of the things they were really good at was encryption. And this was 20 something years ago. Nowadays, encryption is something we all talk about. But part of me It's kind of intrigued, but I wish I knew what was going on inside the CIA right now because I know in about 10 to 15 years it's going to be something we do in our everyday, you know, use of computers and technology because they were very, very ahead of their time with a lot of technology, especially because of, you know, what they're trying to protect But it was a great time, really great time. I worked with lots of great people. And as you you heard, I traveled lots of great places, but I learned a lot. It was a great time in my life. But yeah, fun. Thanks for asking.
0: That's wonderful. And it sounds like if you can hire a former CIA operative for your compliance program, that could come in very handy for the security protections. Exactly, 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 especially with security and especially technology and security for sure. Excellent. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much, Dina, for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for the invitation. It
1: was lovely to talk to you.
0: So if you're interested in learning a little bit more on higher education, the FCPA blog has recently posted on it and posed some interesting challenges to the industry about whether in fact they may or may not be quite up to scratch with their considerations. So definitely an interesting one to take a look at. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.